0: Not to men like you. (laughs) There are no men like me. There are always men like you. Look to your elder people. Let him be an example. You know, the last time I was in Germany, and saw a man standing above everybody else, we ended up disagreeing. The soldier. You know, the thing I love about that clip was that the old man did not say, no, we don't. Neil. He said, not to men like you. We're continuing in our series today, Surrender. And the topic today is Surrendering Allegiance. A heavy word. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but the reason why I thought that clip was pertinent is because in a way, Loki's right. We do all kneel. But who's worthy of it? Who is the one that is worthy of our allegiance? That's the question for today. And um, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Before we get to that, uh, as we said earlier, we're going to play some softball after church today. Um, and it's, Well, hey there, Justin Jones is here. How about that? All right. It is crazy hot out there already, but uh, it is sunny. It is perfect weather to play ball. And I, I don't play ball as often as I should, but I do love the game. I love it because... It is so very American. Sure, baseball is a collection of various other games from cultures around the world, but its place in American culture is something that I hold with great respect. It's the feeling you get when you first walk out of the stands at Camden Yards, the sound of the crack of the bat hitting the ball, the food, the smells, the sounds, the fans. It was also awesome that uh, last night, The Orioles became, in this horrible season, the Orioles became the first team in history to win back-to-back shutouts with 13 runs. Uh, Incredible that, you know, would would happen in this this year. Um, But there's also this legend that goes along with the game, the story of players from over a century ago rising from nothing to become something on a ball field. Cy Young was a farm boy, who never made it past the sixth grade. Babe Ruth's father was a saloon keeper um, and sent his son to an orphanage when he was seven years old. Hank Aaron's family was so poor growing up that he learned to play the game using sticks and trash. The idea that the names of these guys would now become synonymous with the game itself is exactly what makes this game so awesome, and I think that's why it's the perfect American pastime. See, I love our culture. I love baseball, and I love rock and roll and cheeseburgers and apple pie. I especially love that none of those things were original creations, that they were inspired and influenced from other cultures from around the world. You know, this uh, Thursday, my family and I will probably attend a parade, depending on how kind of mood Henry's in, Um We'll probably join in a cookout and we'll probably watch fireworks because we believe that our country's 243rd birthday is worth celebrating. But even as I do that, I have to be careful not to put my country or any of its cultural expressions on the throne because only one thing is worthy of my allegiance. We're continuing this morning in this series "Surrender" that we began last week, and the title of the sermon today is uh, "The Title of the Sermon Today is Surrender Allegiance." That's a heavy word. In fact, I think it's likely that the primary place that you hear that word used in everyday culture is in reference to the pledge of allegiance that most of us probably said every day at school. Or at least we were supposed to say it. Uh, last night, a bunch of us attended the ceremony of our own Andrew West, who recently achieved the rank of Eagle Scout with the Boy Scouts of America. Andrew's not here today, is he? No, it's okay. But the next time you see him, congratulate him. The Scouts began every meeting with the pledge and along with reciting their oath, Scout oath and, and law because it sets the tone for the meeting and it gets them in the right frame of mind for what they are about to do. I got nothing against saying the pledge, but I do think it's a shame that some would hear the word allegiance and instinctively think of a national identity. A few years ago, this great book was written by a guy named Matthew Bates called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. You might guess from the title that the the thesis of Bates' book is that we can, should consider the word allegiance as an alternative translation of the word usually translated faith. Paul especially uses the word faith to describe how the Christian is to live once uh, he or she has been saved by the grace of God. The thing is, the English word faith has been tossed about to the point that we're not quite sure what it means. Uh, the so-called faith versus work debate, faith work versus works debate. Um, would have us believe that there are simply two ways of looking at salvation. Uh, faith as belief and works as action. But that's a very unbiblical way of looking at both of those subjects. The Bible is neither going to support the principle that faith is merely the ascent of belief or that works are absent from belief. As James says, I will show you my faith by my works. So in an attempt to flesh this out a bit, Bates says that we should consider using the word allegiance more, more often because it re- perhaps it reminds us of the one who was on the throne of our lives. He even recalls the words in Ephesians where Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I thought that was a Uh, especially pertinent Avengers clip, (laughs) flaming darts of the evil one. Anyway, Um, but the thought of our allegiance to Christ being a shield against the evil one is a powerful image. Allegiance implies both belief and practice. It affects our choices. The word allegiance means the loyalty or commitment of a subordinate to a superior, When I say I have allegiance to something, it means that the decisions I make have to be tempered by the truth that I have aligned myself with this greater, superior thing. In that vein, allegiance is a very heavy word, and I believe that it should be treated as such. I prefer Coke over Pepsi, but I have no allegiance to Coke. You know, it's not like I go to the restaurant and somebody says, hey, what would you like to drink? I'd like to have a Coke. You know, oh, I'm sorry, we have Pepsi. Oh, no, I have allegiance to Coke. No, I'm fine, I'll have a Pepsi. I grew up in Parkville. I'm a resident of Reisterstown. I work and have church in Catonsville. But, but I don't profess allegiance to any of those towns, meaning that the choices I make will not be exclusively or ultimately aligned with any geographic area or, for that matter, preferred beverage no, the term allegiance must be used sparingly, if not only for one purpose. My suggestion this morning is that only God is worthy of your ultimate allegiance. Only God is capable of sitting on that throne and being the focus point of alignment for every decision in your life. I mean, that's a, that's a telling phrase in and of itself, isn't it? Your life. What if you didn't look at it like that? What if you didn't look at your life as your life, but instead looked at it as his life? Would that affect your choices? Would it change your perspective? What would it look like if you took everything that was you and surrendered it in allegiance to God? There's a story told in Matthew's gospel of a time when Jesus, in Matthew 22, uh, starting in verse 15, by the way, in Matthew's gospel of a time when Jesus is approached by the Pharisees and the Herodians who attempted to entangle him in his words. Have you ever been asked a question by someone and you could tell just by the way they asked the question that it is their intention to trap you? That they're looking for the opportunity to yell, gotcha! Whatever you say is going to make you look bad. That's what these religious and political leaders are intending to do when they approach Jesus. The Pharisees were basically the religious police and the Herodians wanted the political and economic advancement of the Herodian family. And there were times when these two groups would have been at very deep odds with one another, but today they're joining forces. They're joining forces to gang up on Jesus with this gotcha question. And they're going to lay it on real thick right from the start. They're going to say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. See, they're trying to butter him up. They're reminding him to speak his own mind, not worrying about anyone's opinion, even the opinion opinion of Caesar. They wanted to paint Jesus as this radical revolutionary, and they were hoping that they would catch Jesus saying something that would get him in trouble. Jesus, of course, was a radical revolutionary, but but not in the way that these religious and political leaders thought he was. Still, they serve him up, this super sweet introductory uh, word, uh, these super sweet introductory words, and then they ask their gotcha question. Tell us, then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, remember... The Pharisees weren't just referencing the government. This passage, especially the words that are coming next, have frequently been used as a call of like separation of church and state. And I want to get to that in a moment. But remember that the context here is very different from a simple reference to the government like we might have today. The Romans weren't just the government. They were pagan oppressors who were demanding taxes from the Hebrew people that they were occupying. Revolts weren't uncommon. Uh, Revolts that attempted to rally Israel against the thought of paying taxes to Rome. In fact, there was a revolt that had taken place just a few decades earlier by a guy named Judas. The Romans crushed it. And they spread crosses throughout the land with dead and dying Jewish revolutionaries in order to show the people that they were oppressing, this is what happens when you go against us. Taxes aren't optional. So Jesus had already started this quite a stir with all of this son of man kingdom talk. And the crowd must have become silent when the Pharisees asked this question. Everyone wanted to know exactly how Jesus would answer this question. Matthew tells us that Jesus, aware of their malice, says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Hypocrites is a theater term in the first century world, in the biblical world. It's a theater term, uh, meaning somebody who puts on a mask in order to play a role. Show me the coin for the tax, Jesus said and they brought him a denarius. Now, a denarius was a coin similar in style to our own quarter. On one side, it had a profile of a man's head with the words written above it, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side was a picture of the Roman goddess Pax, the, the goddess of peace, with a Latin description inscription, high priest. And he writes that says that Jesus asking for this, it would have been like him asking to see a dead rat. The crowd looks at it with utter disgust. And where does it come from? Because Jesus didn't have one on him. He asked the Pharisees to show him this coin, and just by this action, he draws attention to these leaders who were more than happy to have this money on them. Jesus said, now, whose likeness and inscription is this? They they said, oh, it's it's Caesar's. He makes them say the name. Jesus replies, well, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. And if he had just left it there, it might not have been all that marvelous a thing. I mean, that's the line that gets quoted all the time, right? Anytime someone's talking about taxes or doing something with a civic duty, somebody will probably say, well, render under Caesar, right? Sure, pay your taxes. Pay Caesar back in his own coin. But here's the kicker. Jesus finishes the sentence. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. You want to play by Caesar's rule when it comes to currency? Fine, pay your taxes. The real question is, who has your allegiance? Now, to unpack this a bit, I want to take us on a couple of tangents. But I promise we're going to get back to allegiance. When I got the call to pastoral ministry, and not just the call to, to work in ministry, I'd been doing that for most of my Christian life, but, but to dedicate my career to being a, a pastor. The first thing I needed to do was I needed to finish my bachelor's degree. And I wanted to choose something that would be a good launching pad into the ministry that I hope to one day have. I was doing a lot of driving for my job as an exterminator at the time. So I started listening to lots of books on tape, and there was one book that God used to show me the path forward. It was when I read David McCullough's biography of John Adams. That book rocked me in ways that I am still recovering from. I was struck by Adams' humanity. I was struck by his sense of sacrifice to his unformed country. I was struck how he and handled failure How he handled failure was equally as inspiring as how he handled success. There was more than one quote in the book that brought me to tears, but there was one that stuck out. It was right at the beginning. It was a letter written by Abigail Adams to her husband in the fall of 1774. She said, you cannot be, I know, nor do I wish to see you, an inactive spectator. If we expect to inherit the blessings of our fathers, we should return a little more to their primitive simplicity of manners and not to sink into inglorious ease. We have too many high-sounding words and too few actions that correspond with them. Well, that was all it took. I pictured my wife saying those words to me, and in that moment I had peace about the path forward. I didn't know how the story was going to end, but I surrendered my story, even my ignorance, to my career, uh, uh, even my career to the one who did. I ended up receiving a Bachelor's of Arts in History, and I'd strongly encourage other ministers to do the same. Uh, The study of history provided me with a perspective perspective on how God works in his world, and it strengthened my resolve that he alone was the true sovereign who was calling us forward, uh, calling us to follow his lead. Ultimately, studying history helped me fall deeper in love with God because I looked to him as the only one who could bring clarity to the messiness of history's realities. It's funny, though, because the closer I got to God, The more I felt a love for a lesser thing, the more I committed myself to his lordship and put him first with him on the throne, I also noticed an increase for the love of my country. I once heard a a sermon given by a guy named Rob Bell, it was a sermon called "Idol or Tool, And his argument was that anything in this world can be thought of as either an idol or a tool. Everything from pencils to homes to educational degrees to skill sets. Everything in this world, Bell said, is either a tool that will bring you closer to God or an idol that will attempt to replace God. So a man buys a new car. And he loves his new ride, and he finds himself looking outside the window of his office because he's so excited about the next time that he gets to drive it. I mean, let's think for a moment about the purpose of owning an automobile and how it might drive and how it might drift from uh, the area of tool to the area of idle. If a car is a tool, what's it used for? Transportation? Sure. Utility? Sure. Pleasure and enjoyment? Sure, there's nothing wrong with owning a car that brings you joy to drive. Replenishment, recreation, sure, I, I think that some of the most relaxing times are drives to the country listening to music, but, but how do I know if I've drifted into the territory of making that car an idol, has paying for it dominated my budget to the point that I have trouble paying off other responsibilities? Do I find that I get disproportionately emotional about that car if it's threatened in any way? Do I find that I've prioritized the car's place in my schedule in disproportionate ways? Have I used this blessing in my life to selfishly guard my own pleasure rather than using it to be a blessing to others? Idols are anything that draw our attention away from God and onto itself Choices are dictated based on the idol rather than from the foundation of faith and the knowledge of who God is. You see, here is what I found when I studied American history. The United States of America makes a pretty decent tool. It makes a very poor God. First century Rome is a prime example of a people who had placed an imperial identity literally on the throne and combined it with lit of religion. Caesar was supposedly the son of God, the divine high priest. I think Jesus wants to remind us who really is on the throne. And this week, we'll celebrate our country's 243rd birthday. 243 years ago, Adams and others of the Second Continental Congress decided to break from Great Britain and create a new nation dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. You may cringe when you hear those words because you know how hypocritical we've been in regards to that proposition over the course of our history. But for over two centuries, we've continued to wrestle with what it means to be a country of liberty. And that story's not finished being told. Our country was founded by and continues to be occupied by frail, imperfect human beings who struggle to empathize with others for the sake of their own worldview. But even when I disagree with others... When I engage with other citizens in civic discourse in a way that promotes the, the general welfare of others, I've used our system for the tool in which it was designed. But when I use my own point of view as a camp from which to launch a verbal attack on another human being created in the image of God who sees things a little differently from me, I have given far too much power to that worldview and my perspective now becomes an idol. In Romans, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have, been, exist have been instituted by God. Later in that same passage, he says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor, honor to whom honor is owed. An idol is what happens when we put something other than God on the throne. An idol is what happens when something other than God has our allegiance. I found that as I studied American history from the point of view of God's sovereignty, from the point of view of, of God allegiance rather than nationalistic idolatry, it made me love my country, because it made me love my country more because I wasn't expecting it to be God. If I make an idol out of my country and expect it to be God, it will fail. Because I have now made, my, made that into something it was never able to be. But if God has my primary allegiance, then I'm able to see my country and even the darkest corners of its history as a chapter in the larger narrative of my true, so, that, that, that my true sovereign is telling From that perspective, patriotism is something to be celebrated. Not a blind patriotism, but an honest one that engages in civic discourse and wrestles with the truth of our history. That patriotism compels me to show up on election day to cast my vote and hang a flag out on the 4th of July. But it also compels me to write my congressman when I see injustice in our society. When I do those things, I pray that I do all of them with the understanding that God alone has my primary and ultimate allegiance because nothing else is worthy. We're going to celebrate communion now, which is kind of itself a show of allegiance. When we take part in these sacraments, we're declaring to the world, declaring to our community, declaring to ourselves that our allegiance is to the triune God and that he alone is on the throne of our lives. Consider that before you come forward. Uh, Examine yourself. Can you truly say that Jesus is on the throne of your life? Is there any area in your life in which you're being called to surrender to God? There's an area that maybe you're holding back on and you need to say, no, God, you have my allegiance. You have everything. Our communion table at New Hope is open to all who call Jesus Lord. If you are not there, you need to know that we love you and that we are so happy that you're with us. We want you to know that you're welcome here and that we desire New Hope to be a place where you can wrestle with doubts alongside others who are here to show you love and not judge. Now, if you do find yourself coming forward for communion, I will remind you again that communion is one of two sacraments that Jesus instituted, the other being baptism. Where communion sustains our faith, baptism proclaims our faith. We're actually having a baptism coming up on July 21st. So if for you, you'd say that King Jesus have your, has your allegiance and you want to live your the rest of your life as a new creation in him, I'd ask you to come to me later to discuss being baptized on the 21st. Uh, the red is wine, the white is grape juice, and there's also gluten-free crackers um, <clears throat> in, uh, uh, in addition to the bread. Now, please stand with me um, and uh, join in saying, as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed.